Go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I'm thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew 26. We're going to be starting in verse 57 this morning. But last Sunday, we looked at the arrest of Jesus as Judas betrayed him. A conspiratorial crowd arrested him and the disciples kind of abandoned him. They kind of fled from the presence of Jesus, leaving him to deal with the upcoming trial on his own. And then after his arrest, Jesus was taken to stand before the high priest as they sought to convict Jesus of something that they could concoct, something that they could come up with that would deem him worthy of execution under the law of God. We went through a series of narratives in Matthew within which Jesus challenged the authority of the high priest in Matthew 24 and the chief priests over the worship of God in the temple as he condemned their illegitimate practices. And that confrontation is basically what led to what you're about to read in the concluding section of Matthew 26, that the high priest in the middle of the night is seeking to flex his authority by arresting Jesus and bringing him into what is an illegal courtroom under the law of God for a crime that is unspecified. Jesus, of course, will ultimately be called a blasphemer by those that are actually dead in their blasphemy. And here we will see the foolishness of man-made religion against the sovereign authority of the one true God. You know, whenever man attempts to have authority over God, it doesn't end well for man because God's will is what will always stand. Jesus is, according to the book of Hebrews, the greater high priest than Caiaphas, who is actually the one true mediator between God and man. Because of that, anyone attempting to stand in the position of high priest with Jesus standing there is nothing more than a neutered ruler over a false religion. Therefore, when you follow Jesus Christ, there should be an unshakable confidence regardless of the resistance that you face in this life. Because it is always the purpose of God that will stand regardless of who attempts to stand against Him. And so I want to begin reading in Matthew 26, verse 57. Again, Jesus has just been arrested at the gates of the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples have fled And it says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, verse 58, I'm not going to talk a lot about Peter today because I've covered the narrative of Peter's betrayal uh, two or three weeks ago. So if you want more on that, go listen to that sermon. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Number one this morning, I want you to understand that standing in God's will should produce unshakable confidence. Standing in God's will should produce unshakable confidence in your life. Jesus in this moment stood firm against the resistance that was coming against him. And I want you to try to imagine, try to picture in your mind the scene that you have right here. There's a great crowd of priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, soldiers, etc., 
They're marching Jesus into the presence of the high priest, and the high priest has gathered the council of priests against Jesus. Obviously, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are on that council as well. And so there is a great crowd gathered right there, and it's just Jesus alone. The disciples have fled. The disciples have left Jesus in that state, and they feel that they have humiliated Jesus in that moment. They're probably very proud of themselves. And then the high priest stands before Jesus thinking that now his authority is going to be proven. And understand that in all of this text tells us about the narrative, about what's going on in this setting, the high priest is a fraud. Everyone gathered there to try Jesus in this courtyard, in this illegal court of law. They couldn't produce a single charge against Jesus, nor could they find anyone to prove what they were basically trying to say. They're trying to say that Jesus is a danger. They're trying to say Jesus is the fraud. They're trying to say Jesus is the blasphemer. And so they actually disobeyed the law of God that they claimed to be enforcing, and they gathered false witnesses against Jesus, making false statements. Law of God clearly says don't bear false witness against your neighbor, but that's exactly what they are doing because they are so intent on killing Jesus Christ. Finally, they attempt to charge Jesus with threatening to destroy the temple, even though you and I both know that Jesus in that moment was speaking of His body because He was the presence of God, but the temple had ceased to be in that era. But through every bit of it, note, Jesus never backs down. Jesus never despairs. Jesus never begs for mercy. Jesus shows zero fear at the threats that they make. Jesus shows zero fear at the tactics of intimidation that they try to put in place. Jesus had unshakable confidence in the face of fierce resistance of those that were supposed to lead Israel in worship of God, who was actually in their presence right then and right there. And they were so blinded by their sin that they couldn't even recognize the deity of Jesus Christ standing right before them. And friend, I will tell you, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to live the type of life that Jesus himself showed us while he was on earth. And because of that, you should never let resistance against your faith deter you from following Jesus. Jesus' confidence was rooted in the sureness of his word. Jesus' confidence was anchored in the very thing that you should give your unshakable confidence to in the will of God. Jesus Speaking through the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 46.10 that he, God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things yet to come, saying, my counsel shall stand, my, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That text proclaims to us that the promise that it is the counsel of God that will stand regardless of what the world around you looks like. It's the purpose of God that will always be accomplished. Regardless of who stands against you, you should never place your bet on them. You should never put the trust of your life in those that stand against God, regardless of what they call you to. Regardless of what they tell you you have to do in order to fit in in this world, in order to make it in this society, in order to be the person that this world would condition you to be and groom you to be, they may appear victorious for a season. 
But the end thereof for them is always going to be condemnation, as it was for Caiaphas and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. If they did not repent of their sin and turn to faith in Jesus Christ, they would fall under the very condemnation that they were trying to give to Jesus in this moment. Therefore, you should never trust this world to lead you to salvation. You should never trust this world to lead you down the path of wickedness. Jesus was fearless in the face of his captors because there was nothing that they could do to stop the purpose of God from being accomplished. If you look at Hebrews chapter 6, the author of Hebrews in verse 17 and 18 writes of the Abrahamic covenant that found its ultimate fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for ref- we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. He's telling them that the sureness of the promise of Abraham's descendants outnumbering the stars and all the families and all the nations being blessed in the world is rooted in the trustworthiness of two things. He calls them unchangeable things. The first one is God himself. God is unchanging. God is unchangeable. If you believe that God is changeable, you therefore are making a statement that you don't believe God is perfect. I don't know if you know this or not, but it's kind of like my life. You can't improve on perfection. I'm just kidding, by the way. That was a joke. Don't send me an email. I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. But God is completely unchanging because of his perfection. But there's a second thing that he talks about, and that's that oath. He's talking about God's word. He's saying that you can trust God because he is unchanging, but you can also trust in his word because his word is unchanging. Why? And he gives us the promise there. He says, it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, if God has made a promise in his word, like he did in the Abrahamic covenant, then you know that regardless of who stands against it, regardless of what the condition is in your life, that God's word will always come to fruition because God's promises are as trustworthy as God himself. If God has promised it, then you can bet your entire life on the sureness of that promise. God's guarantee of anything is something that he commits to doing. Therefore, when you submit to the promises of God, you're submitting to the only sure thing in this life. God is trustworthy, even if the entire world lies to you. You can trust in God, and you should trust in God, and God alone. You realize also that Jesus had no accountability to those surrounding him. He was not accountable to these people. Jesus is standing trial into a court that he has zero accountability towards. They were accountable to him. And this is the great juxtaposition of how we consider success, how we consider failure, and even in how we consider authority in this moment in our world. As Jesus stood before them, think about this. Jesus was the one that was captive. Jesus may have and probably was even bound. Jesus was completely alone. The disciples had deserted him. And Jesus was facing threats by people that claimed to have authority over him. But yet, even though it looks like Jesus is the accountable party here, Jesus is the one that possessed the authority. Jesus is the one who possesses ultimate power. And even in this moment, it was Jesus 
that was standing in judgment of the high priest. It wasn't the high priest that was standing in judgment of Jesus. And everyone in his presence that evening was being held accountable by God and they failed the test. Regardless of what the high priest and all of his lackeys would say or do, they were the ones on trial before a just and holy God, and they would be the ones that would face condemnation for their actions. Jesus stood confident. Why? Because he's God. Jesus stood confident because he knew that regardless of what they did, on the other side of death, he would just rise. Jesus knew that there was ultimately nothing that anyone in this crowd could do to stop the promises of God from coming to fruition. There was nothing that any of them could do that would silence his word. There was nothing that any of them could do. Do your worst. That's Jesus's posture in this moment. Why? Because Jesus knows that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And even in his death, he would be the one to flex ultimate authority because he would be the one to rise again. And understand in that, number two, humanity has no authority over the purposes of God. None. A single one. Humanity will always be accountable to God. This is true regardless of your belief system, regardless of your philosophy, regardless of your position in life. I need you to understand this morning, you are accountable to God. No matter how you may respond to the will of God, nor how you seek to hold God accountable to your standards, you are accountable to Him still. It's like a child rebelling against his or her parents. That's what it looks like for man to try to have authority over God. The high priest demands an answer for Jesus from Jesus. And I love this. Look at what it says in the text, starting in verse 61. The high priest is speaking. The, the, uh, the witnesses say, this man, I said that I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Jesus didn't have to answer. Caiaphas was not in a position to demand answers from Jesus. Jesus basically, by his silence, gives Caiaphas a finger that I won't mention. He looks to Caiaphas and he says, nothing. And the silence of Jesus Christ was the silence of the authority figure in the room. And it's deafening. He's not answering because Jesus is looking around him and saying, do your worst. There's nothing that you could do to Jesus. The high priest looks to him, and this is a great example of what I believe Proverbs 26.4 is talking about when the, 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 the wise one writes and he says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. I see this play out so often every single day. Christians believing that they are accountable to an unbelieving world. Christians believing that when people come to them with bad intention in their questions, and demand answers from you. You are the one that feels like a fool in that scenario. And you're like, I've got to find an answer. No, you don't. Be silent. Give them nothing. You know the foolishness of unbelievers. Nothing in this world. They are the fools. 
When you seek to place yourself under the accountability of foolish pagans in this world, you do nothing more than make yourself just as big of a fool as they are because you are leading them down a road where you pretend they have some authority over you and God. I watch things happen on social media where apologetics are concerned all the time. And the old saying is true, a lie travels halfway around the world before truth makes it down the block. You see all these pocket theologians that are atheists and they say, oh, I've finally disproven God. Did you know that this verse is contradictory to this verse? Like, oh my gosh, Pastor Steve, I think they're disproving Christianity. No, they aren't. You trying to tell me that you think they're going to bring up something that we haven't had an answer to for 2,000 years? Church of Jesus Christ has endured atheists in every generation. We've endured false religion in every generation. Every perceived contradiction has an answer. But pardon me if I don't feel the need to come running every time an atheist flexes his foolish effect muscles. There's nothing that they can do. I do not answer a fool according to his folly. What I seek to do is I try to discern the difference between a well-intentioned question and an attack. Because if you're attacking me and you're attacking my faith, then I know you aren't looking for an answer. You're trying to make me look like a fool. Well, I'm not going to pretend that your questions are from these deep pockets of genius that you think you found in your subconscious. You are a fool and I will treat you as such. I will not steep to the level of foolishness. And so I do not try to answer a fool according to his foolishness. I present the word of God and I say, if that is not sufficient, then maybe you stand condemned right before me. Somewhere along the line, we believe the lie that evangelism means that we've got to be the coward in the situation. That good evangelism looks like making God somehow cuckolded to the lies of sin in this world. No, our God is superior. He is the one that possesses truth. Anyone that would challenge Him is the fool, and that is another sin that he or she must repent of. And so when I engage the world defending the faith as I often do, I come from a place of victory. I don't come from a place where I might be defeated. If you want to know why Jesus was silent in this moment, it's because Jesus possessed victory. When you are the possessor of victory and you are the possessor of truth, then you are the one that can hold the world on trial. The world can try to hold you on trial, but you do not have to submit to a single hypothesis of this world. You do not have to submit to a single thing that this world would do to hold you accountable any more than Jesus Christ did. Because often what I see people doing, even with your own family members, is that you try to answer a fool according to his folly. And what does that make you? I'm not going to answer, just read the text. Caiaphas, in this moment, exhibits the most profound foolishness in the history of the world. The man who was responsible to lead the nation of Israel into the presence of God in worship is attempting to show his authority over that same God. What a fool. As I said, the silence of Jesus is deafening, and he's exhibiting his authority. Friends, if you want to see... Jesus revealed his identity and Jesus revealed his authority. Look at his silence in this moment. He doesn't need to obey any order from Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the one that needs to obey Jesus. Caiaphas seeks to condemn Jesus while he stands condemned before Jesus. 
It's like an ant proclaiming his authority over the boot by which he's about to be crushed underfoot. So is the demand of Caiaphas that Jesus be accountable to him. Because friends, I will tell you, Jesus is always on the right side of history. Every single time. People and unbelievers in the world will always look to the church and say, don't you want to be on the right side of history? In other words, don't you want to progress further towards a hellscape like we are? I have no fear of being on the wrong side of history because I'm going to be on the right side of heaven. Pagans are the ones that have something to fear if they don't repent and trust in Jesus Christ because they're always going to end up on the wrong side of hell. Over the last few years, Romans 13 That chapter has been a big issue within the church in the United States of America. And Jesus before the high priest is a great example of standing against the tyranny of an unjust government. Romans 13.1 states that the government is limited by God, not the other way around. Text says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And that's where a lot of pastors stopped three years ago. They said, oh, I guess we got to do whatever they tell us to. I guess we've got to submit to whatever foolishness they want. I guess we have to let them exert tyranny over the church of Jesus Christ. Read the rest of it. For there is no authority except from where? God. And those that exist have been instituted by who? God. Read all the way down to verse 4, and it actually calls the government the servant of God, not the other way around. So where did the high priest's authority come from? God. Therefore, when the purposes of God are rebelled against by those in authority, and to follow that road would lead you to disobeying God, then the responsibility for repentance is on the ruler rather than those being ruled. Jesus had no obligation to obey this unjust proceeding, nor was he accountable to them, and that is why he was silent in that moment. I've used this analogy many, many times. I don't even remember where I heard it from, but it's not an original. The fire marshal and the fire department have full authority when we have a fire in this building to come put it out. And I hope that never happens. Don't get any thoughts, guys but I'll shake their hand and I will thank them. But they have zero authority dictating how we worship in this room. They have zero authority to tell us how we are to dress for the worship of God. They have zero authority to tell me that I have to look at you and tell you what you should and shouldn't put on your face. By the way, that's something I will never do. You can put on your face whatever you want to, but I'm not going to tell you to do it, and I'm sure not going to tell you what to do with your kids' faces. I got enough problem with my kids. I don't need problems with yours too. I want them to be mad at you, not me. I'm half you are already mad at me. I don't know. But the government has no authority for that. Called us over a dozen times because we had uh, disobeyed something that the health department, I guess, wanted us to do. We We never knew. We just said thank you and moved on with our lives over a dozen times. And guess what? They never did anything. You want to know why? Because they never could do anything. Because the Bill of Rights limits them. The Constitution limits them. 
And so we have to understand that when the government tries to overstep the boundaries of what God would allow us to do and limit us to obeying what God has told us to do, and yes, I very much am saying God has told us that we are to physically gather as a church. When the government says we cannot do those things, we obey God rather than men. It's by the grace of God that we have the Bill of Rights in this country. It's by the grace of God that we have the Constitution that we have. And when the government oversteps the boundaries that those put on them as well, we obey those rather than the government because those documents have authority over the government. I will not compromise on the worship and the obedience that God has called me to and the way that he has called me to lead the church of Jesus Christ. We just simply will not submit it. We will ignore it. I got really good at it over the last two and a half years. I never knew what a spiritual gift of ignoring people I had. That's a Holy Spirit. This is power I had never tapped into. Thank you, Lord. My wife said she knew I had that spiritual gift. She said, you've been ignoring things I've been saying for years. I said, well, I ignored that too, honey, I guess. I don't know. But you never let tyrants lead you down a road that would lead you to disobey your Creator. It's never a good bet. You submit to the rule of God before and over submitting to anyone else's rule in this world. I love it when Jesus does respond. Because Jesus simply reminds the high priest of what he'd already said. Jesus basically quotes to Caiaphas, Matthew 24. Look at what he says down in verse 63. So Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, which is kind of a funny thing to say to Jesus. Hey, in your name, answer me. It's kind of a redundant thing to say to Jesus. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I love the way Jesus responds to him because he tells Caiaphas, basically, we have already had this conversation. I stood in the temple and held you accountable all through Matthew 24. And I'm not going to go over all of that. If you want to know more about what Jesus said in Matthew 24, last year I preached through the whole chapter, a series of sermons. But Jesus here reminds Caiaphas, I am the one that has power. And then he also tells Caiaphas, because you are adhering to the old covenant, when the new covenant is right in front of you, and I am about to establish it on the cross, and I will rise again, I will bring judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD. That is what he is telling Caiaphas. He's telling Caiaphas, you're going to be held accountable within one generation. Jesus is not playing games. Jesus knew that the new covenant would bring judgment on those that defied Jesus in that moment. And that covenant still brings judgment on all who will not submit to Jesus Christ. Friend, there may come a time when the earthly rulers above you seek to exert tyranny over you. We've already seen a taste of it. And I will warn you, defying tyrants may cost you greatly in this life. But that is the path that Jesus always took. Never blindly follow rulers. 
Never blindly follow someone just because they claim authority over you. Follow Jesus down the road of resistance if that is necessary. Regardless of what sinners in the world demand of you, know that Jesus is and will always be on the right side of history because He is the one that commands the ends of history and even the means by which we get to those ends. Therefore, even if the road leads to the cross, what's on the other side? Resurrection. Do your worst because I will rise from the dead. That's Jesus' attitude. And you know what? Here's the deal. For the follower of Jesus Christ, the worst that the world can do is end your life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, do you know what's on the other side of that? Resurrection. Jesus himself says in Luke 12, don't fear him who once he has killed the body can do nothing more. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who after he has killed the body can damn your very soul is what the original language says. That is who you fear. You don't fear effet tyrants. There's nothing they can ultimately do to you. Humanity has no authority over the purposes of God and never will. Therefore, friends, don't follow the path of least resistance in this life if that path of least resistance demands you submit to wickedness. It's not the wisdom of God that leads you to wickedness. It's the foolishness of sin that always leads to wickedness. No matter the sacrifice, stand as Jesus stood. But number three, expect resistance in following Jesus, but never give in. Jesus is facing real resistance. But never forget, Jesus is God. Now, the law that they are holding Jesus accountable to, look in verse 65. It says, And the high priest tore his clothes, his robes rather, and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? The law that they are using to condemn Jesus with is from Leviticus 24, 16. It says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, excuse me, the name, shall be put to death. Now, the high priest in this moment, who is actually the one that is guilty of blasphemy, condemns Jesus under that law. What often gets missed, though, in this narrative and a lot of narratives, though, is when you're reading this text, don't just see Jesus as an innocent man. Don't just see Jesus as a wise teacher who is misunderstood. Don't just see Jesus as some wise sage with a lot of pithy comments to inspire you. Understand that this is God. That Jesus is the Lord of all, that He is the King of kings, that He is the eternal God that spoke and the world existed. That this is the God who wrote Leviticus 24, 16. So Jesus is being unjustly condemned under a law that He Himself wrote. Because sometimes we're so bogged down with the particulars in life or even the particulars in the story of Jesus that we even treat Him as less than God in our minds and along that path to crucifixion. He's the King of kings. He's Lord of lords. Never treat Him as any less than that, which makes this whole scenario that Jesus is in even more unthinkable to me as a human being. Because here's the reality. I couldn't have done this. Neither could you have. 
Not only would I have probably buckled under the pressure because I'm so weak. But more than that, even if I had stood this test, even if I had said, do your worst, even if I had gone to that cross, it wouldn't have done you any good. Because I have my own sin to pay for. I'm not God. I'm a human being just like you. I have sin. I have sin that deserves the fires of hell for eternity, just like you. Only God Himself could endure this trial, could endure this mockery, could endure this suffering, could endure this humiliation. Think about the humiliation that you are God incarnate. You are the one that spoke the world into existence. You are the one that declares the ends from the beginnings and the beginnings from the ends. And you are now being humiliated by your own creation text leads us to believe that Jesus is even blindfolded or has a bag or something over his head because they're punching him and they're slapping him and they're saying, you can't see us. Who was it that slapped you? Prophesy to us, you Christ. They're blaspheming the name of the eternal God to his face. And Jesus endured every ounce of it for you and for me. Because the cross that they would nail Jesus to, the spear that they would pierce His side with, the crown of thorns that they would place on His head, and the death that He would die when He said, it is finished. It's only the death of God that could pay the penalty for my sin. It's only the death of God Himself that could be a substitute for you because Jesus had no sin of His own to pay with, rather to pay for. Friend, to be clear, These men, now spitting, hitting, disrespectfully slapping Jesus. Understand, they had no authority to even kill Him. They couldn't even keep their own law. That's how neutered they were at this point. They had to convince Rome to do it for them. So even men too weak to carry through with their own capital punishment are so blinded in their sin that they are trying to proclaim authority and power and victory over God Himself. They're proclaiming their judgment against God. Friend, I will tell you, it's much like every false ideology that you hear from existentialism to postmodernism to Gnosticism to everything in between. All of it has one thread in common. You know what that thread is? Man trying to judge God. That's the thread that it always has. It says, no, 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 we will unseat Him. We will prove our own authority. We will prove our own wisdom. Even if we have to kill God Himself, imagine the foolishness of finite, limited man proclaiming the death of God. You can't kill the eternal God. God is the judge and can never be unseated, no matter the pathetic attempt of sinful men to unseat Him is. Jesus, the eternal God, endures the blasphemous hands of these false teachers, and He does it as our substitute. He endures the pain, and you are not innocent of this, because it is your sin that sent Him there. But Jesus was committed to the will of God. The endurance of Jesus is another way by which He's completely righteous. 
I mean, regardless of the resistance that Jesus stands up to, he goes deeper into the will of God every moment of it. He prayed for strength in the garden, proclaiming, not my will, but yours be done. And consider this, that this very moment of Jesus being condemned, beaten, slapped, spit on, mocked, is the answer to the prayer in the garden. What amazing righteousness. That the answer to Jesus' prayers is his suffering. I don't know about you, but I'm too weak for that. That's the opposite of my prayer. I've never prayed, Lord, not my will, but yours. Even if it includes more of this suffering. No, my prayers are weak. You know what my prayer always is? Jesus, heal me. Jesus, take this pain away. Jesus, make the suffering stop. I even barter with him. I know you do too. You're not as perfect as you pretend. Lord, I promise I'll read my Bible, the whole thing next year, if you'll just make things go my way. If you just get me that promotion at work. If you just give me a little bit more leisure. If you just make my life a little bit more comfortable. We're weak. We overestimate our ability in the face of a righteous and holy God all the time. The prayers of Jesus were answered with His own condemnation. What amazing righteousness. It's enduring through resistance, though, friends. That is the blessing that Jesus will bring into your life. Here's the reality that a lot of us don't want to deal with, is that if you're going to be a Christian, it literally means you're going to be a follower of Christ. Literally means He's calling you to walk down the path that He's going. That's why James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And I love that. I was reading in Revelation 4 this past week, doing a little study through it. And it's about the throne room of God, and it says around the throne of God are 24 elders. And it says that those 24 elders are wearing the crown of life. And that tells us they have inherited the blessing of God because they stood the test, because they endured the trials which God has promised to those who love Him. Jesus told His followers to expect persecution. And in doing that, He is bringing in a presupposition that you will need a faith that endures resistance. Friends, the only way that you will be able to persevere in the faith is if you are prepared to walk down the same road that Jesus walked. Everybody hates the prosperity gospel until you get sick. Because you say, God, if you're blessing me, that means no trials. God, if you're blessing me, that means everything's going my way. God, if you're blessing me, it's always material. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not giving you a poverty gospel. You should understand that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every blessing that He's brought into your life, you should enjoy. But here is the problem with your faith. Your faith only has margin for what you think is good. Do you have the margin to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know you will call me down the path of pain. And when you do, God, give me the faith to stand. Give me the strength to endure as Jesus Christ himself endured. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5.10 on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. 
Never, ever, ever, ever give in to the world trying to tell you to compromise your faith. And we are living in an era where I've talked to church members whose jobs have been threatened because they're not an ally to this wicked group, this sexually perverted group. Talking to parents whose children are in schools where there's literally pornography in the libraries, seeking to have them and groom them towards mutilating genitals. Do not tell me it's not in our schools. It's in our elementary schools. And they would have you compromise your faith. And they would train you that you just need to be winsome about these issues. Winsome is code word for cowardice. And there are no cowards in the kingdom of heaven. We do not live in an era where the word of God is going to lead us down a path where we're just supposed to agree with everything the pagans will throw at us, even if it sends the world down a hellscape of sexual perversion. Good evangelism looks like standing up to the tide of wickedness coming in this world and saying, even if you kill us, we will stand against wickedness every single time because on the other side of death is resurrection. So do your worst. Friends, we cannot kneel to tyrants when tyrants are begging for the blood of our children. That is the world you are living in. You can deny it. You can tell me I'm crazy. You are in denial of the path God is calling you down. We are not in an era where the world will applaud. We are in an era where they are threatening. We are in an era where they are grooming. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, as you follow Jesus, you are following the one who is victorious. But it is through that resistance that you ultimately see victory. Never give in to that resistance. If Jesus endured, he will give you the strength to endure. His kingdom is sure. His glory is eternal. Don't bend the knee to sinners on earth. Give your life to Jesus because He is the King of kings and the King will reign forever. A few application points this morning. First, stand firm in the promises of God because they're true. He can't lie. So everything He says is true, so I'm going to bank my life on that. Secondly, refuse to compromise your faith in Jesus. Compromise is never good evangelism. You will not reach the lost people of this world through compromise. It's not going to happen. Stand firm in your faith as Jesus did. Thirdly, follow Jesus because He is the eternal God and there isn't another one. If He's the eternal God, then He's the one who wins. Fourthly, endure resistance to show the legitimacy of your faith. Endure resistance to show the legitimacy of your faith. Never give in.